You're listening to Cathedral Chronicles. In this episode, we will finish telling the story of the second great building phase of Newry Cathedral. We'll solve the mysteries of the bricked-up doorway and the tower and the buried archway under the transept. We'll learn how they built the transepts, despite having very limited space available. And we'll find out who made the pulpit, high altar and communion railings. I'm Mark Byrne and I'm a member of a team that has been researching the history of Newry Cathedral for many years. Our guest contributors for this episode are Cathedral Tour Guides Edmund Murta, Dalton Short and Desmond McMahon. In the last episode, we heard about the building of the Bell Tower, but other major works were in progress at the same time. Up until this point, the cathedral was a simple rectangular basilica shape, but a key element of the second phase of construction was to begin to transform it into a cruciform or cross-shaped church. This transformation would begin with the building of two transepts, projecting north and south from the nave, forming the arms of the cross. A number of issues complicated this plan. Cathedral tour guide Edmund Murta explains. Cathedrals were traditionally built on high ground, with a commanding view over the metropolis. In the climate of the penal times, when Newry Cathedral was being planned, it was out of the question that a site like that could be secured. As we heard in previous episodes, the church considered themselves very fortunate to acquire the site on the recently drained floodplain of the Clanroy River at the bottom of the Newry Valley. Today, it is possible to get an excellent view of the cathedral from all angles. But as old photographs show, at the time of the second phase of construction, Newry Cathedral was completely surrounded by buildings on three sides. If you were able to have walked in a southerly direction down Hill Street in the late 19th century, apart from the tops of the towers, you wouldn't have been able to see the cathedral until you were directly in front of it. To the east, behind the cathedral, were streets of high-density shops and houses. To the north and south, buildings came right up to the perimeter of the cathedral grounds and extended as far forward towards Hill Street as the current north and south gates. Only to the east and west was there any substantial room for development. There was a particular lack of space to the south of the cathedral, as the site where the garden is today was then entirely occupied by a huge mill and printworks complex. A narrow public pathway ran east to west between the cathedral and the mill in line with the garden railings that are parallel to the nave of the cathedral today. Between the cathedral and the path, there was very limited space. The north side of the cathedral had only slightly more room available. So how did they deal with the limited space on the south side? To the untrained eye, the two transepts may appear to be identical, but the south transept is, in fact, smaller than the other. 34 feet by 26 feet inside, compared to the north transept that measures 34 feet by 32 feet inside. The lack of building space wasn't the only problem affecting the building of the south transept. There was a waterway, the mill race, running close behind the sanctuary on the eastern end and winding around the south side of the church. The mill race was a channel of fast-flowing water that originally supplied a current to turn a water wheel. It originated from a weir on the Clanroy River and ran behind buildings on the Downshire Road, along Trevor Hill and Water Street behind and around the cathedral and onwards along what is now O'Hagan Street and adjoined the Clanroy River where I'm standing now, just by the footbridge on the Mall. 
Although the mill race had probably been enclosed along Water Street and O'Hagan Street by the time the building work began, it continued to present a major engineering challenge as it still existed just beneath the surface. The location of the mill race meant that a culvert or tunnel would have to be constructed before the south transept could be built. If you stand near the south facade of the transept in the garden and look down to the ground level, you will see just the very top of an arch emerging from the tarmac. This is where the culvert passes out from underneath the cathedral, winding down the garden and flowing onwards down O'Hagan Street to the river. The arch isn't the only part of the mill race that survives today. The culvert is still there and is still sometimes filled with water. Only in fairly recent years, the archway and the walls of the Clanroy, where the mill race joined the river, was bricked up. It can still be seen from the footbridge on the mile today. There are two carved ornamental shields in niches in the west facade of the south transept, one bearing the year of construction, 1888, and the other bearing the monogram AD. Access to the transept is obtained through a porch on that same facade. This porch measures 14 feet from the ground to the top of the moulding, and it features crenellations with an ornate granite cross at the apex. Inside, there are two lancet windows, one each on the north and south walls. The floor was originally covered with encaustic tiles. The door, measuring 9 feet high by 6 feet wide, has a gothic hood moulding with moulded arches, and it sits atop four granite steps. The south transept is lit by a beautiful stained glass triplet traceried window in the centre of the south gable, with lancet windows to the right and left and stained glass traceried windows in the east elevation. Both transepts have truncated roofs and crenellations all round, with pinnacles on each corner terminating in finely wrought stone finials. The total height from the ground to the top of the finials is 47 feet. The roof and gutters on the south transept were laid with copper as a preventative measure against fire. As we'll hear in a future episode, this act of foresight would soon play a role in saving the cathedral from total destruction. Conversely, the roof and gutters on the north transept were done in lead. Each of the transepts could accommodate from 150 to 200 people, depending on seating arrangements. There is an interesting detail that many listeners may be unaware of. At the end of the second build, there was separation of the sexes in Uri Cathedral. Families would enter together, then women and girls would take their separate seats on the north side of the church, whilst men and boys were seated on the south side, the middle aisle serving as the dividing line. As a result, the transepts were informally known as the men's and women's transepts. It's easy to tell which side is which because, as was common practice, there is a statue of Our Lady on the women's side and St Joseph on the men's side. If this segregation sounds archaic to modern ears, that's because it was. The practice in the Catholic Church dated back at least to the 4th century AD and it was inherited from the ancient synagogues. Canon 1262 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law states that it is to be hoped that, in line with the ancient discipline, women in the church are separate from men. Clearly this was only a recommendation and not a requirement. By the time the Code of Canon Law was updated again in 1983, all mention of separation of sexes had been removed. Even though the practice in Newry ended sometime around the mid-20th century, the habit of referring to the women's and men's transepts lives on with many parishioners. The motivation for this separation was the avoidance of distraction, but this may have been short-sighted, as I have it on good authority that even up to the present day, many successful marriages began with an exchange of friendly glances during Mass. 
Another forgotten detail is that gated railings once separated each transept from the main body of the cathedral. The gates were only closed for parts of masses during the annual mission. Even so, behind these railings, another type of segregation existed, even though it was neither designed nor endorsed by the church. As was common in Catholic churches at the time, all pews in the cathedral faced eastwards towards the sanctuary. This meant that those parishioners who were seated in the transepts had a direct view of nothing more than a wall and confessionals. As a result of this restricted view, the seats in the transepts were broadly considered to be less desirable than those in the nave or aisles. It should come as no surprise then that, in a society that was strictly divided along class lines, the transepts became the domain of the underprivileged. The North Transept was populated by poor women, unsympathetically known in Ireland and Scotland as Shawleys due to their attire. Here, they were largely shielded from the gaze of their more well-to-do peers. Here, unseen, many could partake of snuff, enjoying the comfort of a sweet-smelling hit of nicotine. Only when the altar boys later went to clean the church would the evidence of this habit be uncovered. As was the case with the segregation of the sexes, this separation of the poor ended in the mid-20th century. The pews were turned to face the nave with the remodelling of the sanctuary in the 1990s. The seats in the transepts are now very popular as they offer some of the best views of the sanctuary. As we heard in previous episodes, for most of the first hundred years, Newry Cathedral had two towers at its eastern or altar end, and it was in one of these towers that the original sacristy was located. During the second phase of building, the towers continued to stand, but their use was changed. The interior of the towers was opened up into the cathedral, where they acted as side altars. A new and much larger sacristy was built behind the altar and between the two towers. The sacristy had two storeys and measured 36 feet by 20 feet. The ground floor consisted of the sacristy and what was described as a retiring room as well as a staircase to the first floor. The first floor had a single spacious meeting room for use of religious and charitable groups. A new detached building in granite was also constructed at the northeast corner of the cathedral grounds for the use of the Christian brothers for a school, the school having been relocated from one of the towers. One aspect of Newry Cathedral that has changed more than any other over its almost 200-year history was its galleries. Cathedral sacristan and tour guide Dalton Short explains. Due to financial constraints, only a small organ gallery at the west end of the cathedral had been built at the time of the cathedral's original dedication in 1829. A substantial and ornately designed public gallery and organ loft over the nave was designed by W.J. Barr. They were added some 22 years later in 1851. In the second phase of building, beginning in 1888, Duff's original organ gallery was removed and a new arcade-fronted gallery was constructed in its place. This is the organ and choir gallery that can be seen today. But as we will hear in the next episode, it was dismantled and moved in the third building phase. The balustrade at the top of the gallery is of yellow sandstone, capped with Dumfries red sandstone. The front is carved in red sandstone and rests on pillars of polished granite. The gallery is supported by triple pillars of polished Newry granite, resting on moulded granite bases and has terminals of finely moulded capitals. Improvements were made to Barge Public Gallery in the nave.
with new side galleries added on both sides, extending over the aisles. Each side gallery was fronted with pitch pine open panelling with a cap rail. There is one long-standing mystery that Dalton recently managed to solve. We're two-thirds of the way up uh, the staircase into the bell tower. There's very finely polished steps leading up with very nice banisters on either side. And on my left-hand side here, we come to what is obviously a a blocked-up doorway. Uh, When I first came here, I thought it was quite odd. It sticks out by a mile. And we've recently uncovered that this blocked-up doorway was formerly the doorway into what was the organ gallery in the north transept. Up until very recently, we didn't know that there was an organ gallery in the north transept. The gallery of the north transept was constructed during the second phase of the cathedral's construction. The floor and joists rested on rolled iron beams, which extended across the transept from east to west. It measured 34 feet by 15 feet, meaning that it extended almost halfway across the transept towards the nave. The door from the tower to the gallery entered the transept where the mosaic of St Rose of Lima is today, above the confessional to the right of the tower door. Not every new addition to the cathedral during this second phase of construction would be met with universal approval. A new flat-roofed porch was added to the main entrance on the western façade of the cathedral. Known less than affectionately as the salt box to some people at the time and the carbuncle to the cathedral tour guides of today, it completely obscured the handsome Norman arched main doorway. It was constructed from granite, was 26 feet long, 20 feet high to the top of the crenellations, and it projected out 20 feet towards the street. It had doors on the north and south sides, meaning that there was no longer an inviting main door facing onto Hill Street. Two traceried windows with stained glass fronted that western façade, and it had a diagonally panelled pitch pine ceiling and ornamental encaustic tiling on the floor. The porch can clearly be seen in photos from the period. It would turn out to be the shortest-lived part of the cathedral, enduring for only around 10 years. An invitation to tender was published in March 1890 for plasterers to work on the cathedral. W.J. Burke and Son of Upper Dominic Street, Dublin, were awarded the contract for plain and ornamental plastering of the interior. It is worth noting that the interior walls of the cathedral at the end of the second phase were plastered and plainly painted. The intricate mosaics that now cover them were not yet in place. The contract for painting, varnishing, etc. was awarded to Ward and Sons, Newry. Mr. Michael McGill of North Street, Newry, carried out the gas fitting, plumbing and lead work. The copper work was done by Cunningham Brothers of Warren Point. John Kenny, stonemason, and Myrta Lavery, carpenter and joiner, both of Newry, acted as foremen, overseeing much of the work under the clerk of works, Newry architect Richard Hines. In May of 1893, an article was published in Freeman's Journal, inviting members of the public to call to the premises of Charles W. Harrison and Sons, architectural sculptors of Great Brunswick Street, Dublin, to view a magnificent new marble pulpit before its removal to Newry Cathedral. The pulpit is in the same architectural style as the cathedral, perpendicular Gothic, and it is chiefly made from Sicilian marble and statuary marble from Carrara in Tuscany. Appropriately, the centre panel features a carving of the Sermon on the Mount. Its smaller panels contain carved emblems and foliage. A marble communion rail with solid brass gates in the centre was installed during this phase and was the work of the same sculptors. Like many of the fixtures inside the cathedral today, the pulpit and railings were designed by the architect George Coppinger Ashland. 
Harrison and Sons traded for a total of 112 years, from 1860 to 1972, leaving fine examples of their work all over Ireland. Whilst the pulpit was much admired, they would surpass themselves little over a year later with the installation of a new high altar at Newry Cathedral. An article in Freeman's Journal of Friday, October 15th, 1894, provides the following description. The grand new high altar at the Cathedral Hill Street, dedicated to the memory of the late Most Reverend Dr. Leahy, which has been in course of erection for some time past, reached completion on Saturday and, according to the solemn ritual of the Catholic Church, was opened for service on Sunday. Difficult indeed would be the task of attempting to detail the myriad beauties of this magnificent triumph of art, which rivals in minuteness of finish and splendour of design anything of the kind to be seen in Ireland. Of white Sicilian marble, the finest procurable, the central pinnacle captivates the eye on entering the cathedral, towering as it does 25 feet from base to apex cross, flanked on each side by lesser spires of classic outline and purity of colour. The exquisitely wrought carvings and blendings of rainbow-tinted marbles forming a picture not easily forgotten. On each side of the tabernacle are clustered three tiny columns of precious onyx stone of Mexico, while a symbolic pelican in snowy stone looks down upon the sacrificial table. The panelling of the reverdos is of rarest Carrara marble and is splendidly worked out in appropriate subjects, the nativity on the one side and the ascension on the other. Beneath the altar table, the Last Supper, also in Choices Carrara, reveals a series of finely grouped figures, while at the extreme left and right tricolumned supports of black Parisian sienna and white marbles hold aloft massive brass candelabra of seven branches each. Messrs Harrison and Sons, Great Brunswick Street, Dublin, have reason to congratulate themselves on the work and may be justly proud of their vindication of Irish workmanship. To the venerable prelate, whose energy in the great work of renovation has been unceasing, the Catholics of this diocese must owe a deep debt of gratitude, and doubtless in generations to come, when the dust of many years has dimmed the radiant luster of the marbles of today, the name of the Most Reverend Dr McGivern will be reverenced and his memory cherished for the great work which he has now almost accomplished. On Friday the 11th of November 1898, eight joy bells were delivered to the cathedral, weighing in all over six tonnes. The bells came from the foundry of John Taylor and Company, Lockborough, Leicester. The Taylor foundry was established in 1784 and is still in business today. The bells were transported to Newry by the Dundalk and Newry Steamship Company. They were hoisted from the tower entrance porch through a series of large trapdoors on each floor to join Bishop Leahy's huge tolling bell in the belfry. The Newry reporter of 14th November 1899 reported that The provision of appeal was rendered possible by the generous donation of a late parish priest, the Reverend McAleenan. And upon the bells, the name of the donor fittingly finds a place. It is intended to hang the bells from iron girders, which are already fixed in the tower. And the work of placing them in position is not expected to occupy more than a fortnight. As at present arranged, they will be rung in the ordinary way, by hand rope. But one may readily believe 
that the installation of a mechanical ringing arrangement is only a matter of time. The installation of the joy bells in November 1898 marked the end of the second phase of construction of Newry Cathedral. The late Dr Leahy and his successor Dr McGivern had realised the shared dream of all of their predecessors since the cathedral opened for worship in 1829 to extend and enhance it. But despite the enormous scale of the works completed, the cathedral was by no means finished. There was an over-reliance upon extensive galleries that now covered the nave, part of the aisles and half of the north transept to accommodate the large congregation. This must surely have darkened the interior of the cathedral and the only means of gaining access to the galleries was via cramped spiral staircases that would have been unsuitable for people with mobility issues. Dr Leahy and the late architect Timothy Heavey's plan for a new chancel consisting of choir, sanctuary and apse had also not been realised. It was the new sacristy building that formed the somewhat squat head of the cross in the newly cruciform cathedral. Indeed, the cathedral at this time formed a rather stubby cross compared to its elegantly proportioned footprint today. Just two years later, on Saturday, November 24th, 1900, Bishop McGivern died at his residence at Violet Hill after several months of illness at the age of 73. He was buried in St Mary's Cemetery, Newry. His grave is marked with a fine granite Celtic cross that carries a quote from St Ambrose in the inscription, We have loved him in life. Let us not forget him in death. On Tuesday, 18th of December, Dr O'Donnell, Bishop of Raffoe, celebrated a special High Mass in the Cathedral, and this was followed by a conference of clergy with the intention of electing a successor to Bishop McGivern. The Reverend Henry O'Neill was the clear victor with 12 votes. The other two nearest candidates, Reverend McConville gaining two votes and Reverend Kearns gaining one. These names were submitted to Rome for consideration by the Holy Father. In the meantime, Cardinal Logue, the Primate of all Ireland, served as Apostolic Administrator of the Diocese. He had stepped in after Dr McGivern's illness left him unable to fulfil his duties in July 1900, and he retained this post until May 1901, when Dr Henry O'Neill was finally appointed as Bishop of Dromore. In the next episode, we will learn how, with the appointment of a new bishop, came a renewed ambition to complete the cathedral. We'll hear how, only three years later, Bishop O'Neill would once again summon the architects, builders, artisans and craftsmen to work on enlarging and enhancing the cathedral. During this third phase of building, an extraordinary transformation would take place that entailed the dismantling, relocation and rebuilding of the entire front of the church and the recently built sacristy at the eastern end, the extension of the nave, the dismantling of the two eastern towers and the construction of a new chancel and side altars. This episode was written, produced and presented by me, Mark Byrne, with additional material adapted from various works as detailed in the description. This episode features original music that was composed and performed by Kevin Canavan. Thanks for listening.